I wouldn't put anything past raccoons, frankly. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is someone who has her own raccoon handling gloves, uh, <laughs> could probably help out some of the Major League Baseball teams that have been inundated with rogue stray cats invading the games, oh, uh, and that would be Dr. Kaylee Byers. Wow, there are a lot of things going on in that introduction. My first reaction was like, keep cats inside. <laughs> yes, raccoon handling gloves, I do own them for handling rats, they're very uh, they're very handy for pulling rats out of out of traps and then putting them back to where I trap them from. But yes, that is something that I do technically own two pairs of. I don't okay. own too many things. What about you, Michael? What do you have two of? Uh, well, I don't have any sorts of those kinds of gloves, but I was just thinking about, you know, because there was a, a famous incident that happened uh, in the summertime as we're recording this, where a bunch of New York groundskeepers were trying to chase this stray cat and none of them were wearing gloves. And I thought, this is a stray cat. This is a bad situation. And it took them a while to get try to coerce the cat out of the stadium. It was uh, quite hilarious. Well, and there's always hilarious things to be had with uh, domestic animals, feral animals, wild animals. And today we're talking about the wild kind and something that kind of looks like cats, but is not a cat. So today we are joined by Dr. Daniel Heath Justice, who's a Colorado-born citizen of the Cherokee Nation and professor of critical Indigenous studies and English at the University of British Columbia. And Daniel has published a number of books and his newest book Book, Raccoon has just been released. His works consider questions of indigenous belonging, imagination, and other than human kinship. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I am really delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I mean, I'm biased because I spent a lot of time with urban wildlife, but I think it'll be the best time. Before we dive into your new book, Raccoon, which I'm really excited to talk to you about, I, I wanted to ask you a bit about your inspiration for this book to start because your creative works sort of consider questions around other than human kinship and you've published another book about badgers. So what is it about these like other than human kinships that interests you? I've always loved animals, but I've always loved weird animals. <laughs> it was never like the charismatic megafauna. They're great. I'm glad they're around, but it was always animals that are little strange, sometimes the ones that are despised by a lot of humans. Mm -hmm. For me, that's, I think, where a lot of the interesting stories come from. Like, why are these animals so, well, often polarizing? Or why, do, why is there so much investment in seeing them as problems rather than as co-participants in the world? Um, and I was just kind of a, a I didn't have a lot of friends as a kid. I was very much a nerd in my very small Colorado town. Uh, and animals were very much part of my life and were very central to the way I understood the world. And there was just an honesty in animals that I I, I found human interactions quite stressful sometimes. Um, I didn't understand some of the social codes of the kids I grew up with. And animals were pretty straightforward. If you messed with them, they left you or bit you, or you know, but you always knew what was going on. There wasn't a lot of guile there. Michael and I talk a lot about uh, childhood uh, relationships and friendships. So I think there's some similarity there. So I find this topic 
incredibly fascinating. I'm an urban wildlife biologist. I've spent a lot of time thinking about our connection to wild animals. As a studier of rats, I think a lot about our relationship to rats and how our actions often have negative consequences for the well-being of wildlife around us. So how would you characterize our relationship with raccoons? Very vexed. In a big way, we are actually responsible for raccoon proliferation. Mm-hmm. And in so many people complain about raccoons, you know, as as so-called trash pandas. But it, that's because of humans. That has nothing to do with raccoons. Um, and you know, in what was it, 2016, there were some researchers who did some modeling to show that about 61% of the world is ripe for raccoon expansion yeah. into territories that they've never been in before. Um, so on that level, I mean, there are more raccoons in the world today than any time in their evolutionary history. And that's partly because they've done well as a result of, of us. But that comes after we had huge impacts on their populations um, in the early 20th century, late 19th and early 20th centuries. So it's there's a lot of ebb and flow. Uh, but even the what we might see as a good news story, and even that good news story has a lot of consequences for other species, you know, part of the reason a lot of raccoons are doing so well in urban centers is because we've had severe impacts on their wilder habitats. Um, and then a lot of the food they're getting is not good. Like it, it helps them breed and it helps them grow, but it also adds to hypertension and tooth decay and other, mm-hmm. the same consequences that humans have from the fat and sugar rich foods that we eat. So I think our our impacts are diverse, positive in some ways, quite negative in other ways. And that's not counting all of the abuses that are inflicted on raccoons, all of the traffic fatalities and and all of those issues. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting dichotomy. And I there's there's so many parallels, I think, between raccoons and rats that we, I will we'll just have to sort of talk about as we go through because <laughs> I need to. But the sort of the same thing, right, is rats do well because people do well because we provide food for them. And then often there is this uh, this impact of people on wildlife where they're eating junk food, right? They're eating our McDonald's that's left over. They're not necessarily in good habitat. So they benefit from having this space where there's lots of food for them, but they're they also have these health impacts that are really difficult also to quantify. Well, and if we if we change the way we handle our waste, that will have catastrophic impacts on them, right? Um, if we mm-hmm. if we limit their access, then these huge populations are going to collapse. Um, now we have so many concentrated populations. Uh, you know, issues like distemper can just blaze through an entire city's population um, with really horrendous impacts. Whereas in the wild, they'd be more dispersed and there would be much less likelihood of so much suffering. So it's, it is a good news story in some ways, and I, I don't want to lose sight of that, but it's always got a, a shadow on the flip side of it. Daniel, you talked about the wilder habitats of the raccoons. So if we were to go out and try to find, you know, some raccoons out there, I always wonder like where they go. They always seem to always just appear in your bounds, you know, like the the garbage cans. But, (laughs) you know, if we were to go looking for some raccoons in the city, like where would we generally find them? Well, you're going to find them in locations where they're going to be able to den pretty 
easily. But it, so in the city, that could be almost anywhere. Um, they and they have multiple den sites. They have kind of limited territories. There's been some interesting studies on uh, the kind of the territorial expansion, and they they don't necessarily go long distances. Uh, females, males get around a little bit more or a lot more, <laughs> which, you know, we, we, could, we could talk about that later too. But um, so you're going to, anywhere that they can get to a good den site, typically they still like to be near water. Um, water is still pretty significant to them. Um, running water if possible. A place where there is a, a mix of open transfer areas and places that they can escape and where they can move without um, observation. So you will find raccoon, you know, any place that has, you know, rivers and canals and streams, they're going to be within ready access of that more likely than not. If you have like places with empty lots that have a lot of briar um, and bramble coverage, they're going to like those areas. You know, they, they will be in downtown very congested urban areas too, but they're going to be in places where they can, they can hide, but where they can also get access to food. And of course, females are going to be more looking for, you know, especially when they're having their babies, they're going to be looking for places where there's more security that way. But there aren't a lot of places you won't find raccoons. They can be quite good at kind of being unobserved, but um, as they become more comfortable in spaces, they won't necessarily be too concerned um, as long as there aren't ready predators. Like if there are loose dogs they're more likely to be secretive than if um, you know dogs are mostly leashed and there aren't other predators in the area. And you also talked about sort of like how humans have impacted their development. So are there still pockets where there are wild raccoons or have humans pretty much just like taken over all of the spaces that raccoon, wild raccoons used to inhabit? Oh no, there's still many wild raccoons in lots of their, you know, in traditional habitats and also expanding into into new ones but they do really well with human um, interruptions and partly the reason they do well is because we've taken care of their few predators uh, raccoons don't have a lot of predators I mean things like coyotes and wolves and bobcats and lynx I mean those sorts of things will will go after them but they're they're a meso predator so they're not as vulnerable as rats would be, for mm-hmm. example. You know, any place where we've taken care of their predators, they're going to be pretty readily available. But yeah, in, in the wild, part of the issue is, though, you're, you're less likely to see them in the wild except at things like campsites where they already know there's going to be some food around because they're going to be more dispersed. But they, they absolutely, they're quite adaptive. So they can do quite well in the wild. They can do quite well in urban areas. Um, but urban areas will often have better pickings for them. There's less uncertainty in terms of food and predators. In Nova Scotia, my experience has been that um, most of the raccoons in the wild tend to like to be wherever my car is driving at <laughs> that exact time. <laughs> yeah, sadly. Yeah. Well, you also mentioned, Daniel, of course, the name that a lot of people like to call them, Trash Pandas, uh, also one of my favorite Parallel 49 beers. But <laughs> if we get into a, a bit of that name, I don't know if that's you know derogatory. Like when you're telling the story of, of a raccoon, you know, is Trash Panda, is that an accurate description of a raccoon? Or is that just, you know, more sort of this myth that humans have associated with them? Um, I, I see it as a myth. Um, I don't, for many, many years, uh, red pandas were considered a relative of 
raccoons. Um, although now they're in their own family, so they're they're not considered one of the uh, procyonids. I think it, it's just you know because they they look like pandas in some ways, especially when they're kind of short and squat, and they are cute. I mean, there's no getting around the the fact that they have some adorable similar features but that trash aspect is is kind of like it's it's one of those terms that is both admiring and condemning at the same time like yeah they're cute but they're really filthy animals and for me i think it's a really unfortunate name i understand that people use it but the the issue of trash pandas i mean the, the reason they're going after people's trash is because people are not taking care of their trash it has nothing to do with with any kind of malice on their part or some desire to be trashy. Like there, there's just a lot that's kind of buried in that, um, and so I I don't tend to use it except to identify that it is a term that other people do use. That that actually leads into another question that we had, which was around symbolism of raccoons. And you know, rats have, again, rats rats have lots of symbolism, dirt disease, but also intelligence. And so what what do raccoons symbolize? How has that symbolism sort of changed over time? Well, that's that's a big part of the book um, is looking at the at the cultural symbolism and how that's shifted. You know, indigenous in indigenous traditions, raccoons have a, a diversity of meanings, you know, just like they do now. Um, and there's early Mesoamerican uh, imagery that in, you know concerns about raccoons being crop raiders, but also honoring raccoons as being attached to harvests. Um, so human human responses to raccoons have always been vexed because raccoons have always pushed against the boundaries of whatever taxonomy was kind of brought to bear at the time. So um, you know, in many of our traditions, raccoons are trickster transformer figures. They are boundary breachers. Um, they are figures who who kind of upend tradition and law and order in ways that can be really important and, and quite good, and sometimes in ways that can be quite destructive. That carries on into European colonization. And, I, and, and just to like in in indigenous traditions, those traditions are still ongoing. It's not like they ended. Um, so you know they are still quite significant in a lot of communities, ceremonies, and traditions. You know some communities have clans that are named for raccoons. But there's there's this kind of accretive process. You know layer after layer um, in colonial America as as it's starting to move from a colony into the United States. Raccoons are seen as kind of this this symbol of native-born wilderness and uh, kind of wild guile and determined backwoods wildliness. And then that gets mapped onto you know, the rise of very ugly anti-Black uh, representations mm. um, you know, around you know, in the 1840s is when that really starts to, um, t- start to harden in American popular culture. And then they start to be seen as sneaky, as thieves. And, you know, that attaches to really ugly anti-Black stereotypes. And then as more and more people from many different communities start to become urban, and as raccoons start to become more urban, then they start to be seen as both kind of representatives of the endangered wilderness Mm. and also of kind of urban adaptability but again these all work in tandem it's not like 
one completely takes over from the other. The, they, they layer on top of one another. And then you always have this narrative of outlaws, boundary breachers, lawbreakers. And of course, it's always about raccoons violating human ideas of what their proper behavior is, rather than raccoons are just doing what raccoons do. And yeah. you know, now I think the dominant narrative is is the out the urban outlaw kind of thing. Um, and we'll see where it goes from here. But it's uh, it's a it was a really interesting project to look at those different symbols because it it's quite clear how that that shift happens and where that shift happens over time. Yeah. So I mean, you're talking about sort of this this complex symbolism of raccoons changing with human perceptions, colonialism, urbanization. When you were doing your work for the book Badger, do badgers have the the same kind of changing symbolism? Not so much. And I think part of that is because badgers have tended to be smaller in population and more furtive. Mm. Um, they they tend to flee from humans, whereas raccoons are drawn to humans. And this is from the a conversation I had with Suzanne McDonald, who's an um, animal behaviorist um, at York University. And she talked about raccoons being a neophilic species, drawn to the new, as opposed to most animals who are neophobic, who are kind of repelled by it. And that would be badgers. Badgers, you put something new in their territory, they are not liking that. Because it, it could be quite dangerous, right? They also have lower birth rates. They have there's just a lot of pressures on badger populations that are quite different from that of raccoons. Put something new in a raccoon's territory, and it's all over it. You know, maybe this is food. Maybe this is habitat. Maybe this is entertainment. So it is quite interesting to see how the two different species. I mean, there's there are a lot of similarities. Uh, Europeans didn't have raccoons. They had no equivalent of raccoons. And so badgers were often one of the animals that was associated. They would say, oh, it resembles a badger, but it lives in trees. They didn't quite know what to do with it, but they saw some similarities between the two species. So it's uh, that for me was an interesting comparison of the two, that humans don't know a lot about badgers. And so we projected a lot into that absence we think we know a lot about raccoons, and we've projected a lot onto them, but even that is about, you know, 30% right. This is so, so interesting to me, and it, it makes me, like, I think about rats, so many symbols around rats, pigeons, mm-hmm. similarly. Like, is it these Absolutely. animals that we interact with closely? I wonder if it's that, that closeness with animals that allows us to project or causes us to project so much onto them. And why do we do that? (laughs) Well, I think one thing that was really, that I I thought quite a bit about was the animals that we tend to vilify the most are the ones who intrude on the spaces that we consider ours, Mm. even though we know these are all, you know, projections onto them. And I think especially in the industrialized West where kinship with other than human beings is not a value. You know, animals exist for entertainment, mm-hmm. for economic value, um, for you know exploitation, but they don't exist as other peoples with whom we're in in relationship. In that kind of worldview, animals who refuse to recognize human superiority are an existential problem. Mm-hmm. And so things like rats, things like coyotes, things like crows, 
pigeons, all of these creatures who just, they just won't go away. Cockroaches, raccoons, all of these. But part of that is because we, they put the lie to human superiority. Mm -hmm. Um, They put the lie to the idea of, you know, in this Cartesian dualistic framework that dumb matter is somehow distinct from elevated human significance. They just don't let us be superior, and they're going to challenge us on that. And I don't think people often, the folks who ascribe to that worldview, I don't think are necessarily thinking of it overtly, but I, I, I think it's a, it's a deeper psychological issue. So Daniel, you're a self-professed uh, raccoon nerd, and like you say, you were drawn to the, the weird animals that live amongst us. So as you went through in writing this book, was there anything that surprised you that, that you were kind of drawn to, that even though you already were uh, in that place of uh, loving raccoons and uh, wanted to write about them, but uh, found something new for yourself? Oh, I was constantly surprised. There were just so many things. The neophilia, neophilia, neophobia kind of frame, that helped explain so much for me. And then you can really see that all through the history. You can see that through, you know, all the way to uh, Mississippian traditions um, in what's now the uh, southern U.S. I was really surprised. I, I found out that raccoons, as a fur bearer, have had the biggest economic impact of any fur bearer from North America, well surpassing that of the beaver. Oh, um, and for a much longer time. If, if you want a, a a fur trade animal, it should have been the raccoon. It probably shouldn't have been the beaver. So that shocked me. The, the fact that there are more raccoons alive today than ever surprised me. That Toronto raccoons are really becoming their own, their own thing. Suzanne McDonald uh, kind of refers to them as uber raccoons. Like they, are, they look like they're on an evolutionary trajectory of kind of moving into a different level of raccoonness. Well, and you know, everybody who sees Toronto raccoons says, wow, they are huge raccoons. They are selecting for size. They're selecting for a particular kind of um, mental acuity. I mean, they're, they're, they are becoming a different kind of raccoon. You know, they're not a separate species yet, but they're, they're shifting. So they're just constant surprises. One, one last thing, uh, Pennsylvania for Quite a while, the Pennsylvania, I think it was the Pennsylvania Department of Game. Anyway, the, one of the Natural Resources Commissions, they had a mascot who was called Howdy the Outdoor Good Manners Raccoon. Um, and so he was kind of like Smokey the Bear and Woodsy Owl. And he's this kind of pudgy raccoon with a red flannel shirt and a ranger hat and a mallet. <laughs> And he has these weird bulging eyes and this vacant stare and this mallet. And he is the creepiest <laughs> looking mascot who ever existed. Like he is, he is not, like he's all about you, you exercise good outdoor manners or else. Like he's so spooky. So I, I was able to get a, a picture of him in the book. I was really pleased with that. But you can just look him up, Howdy, the Outdoor Good Manners Raccoon. And there are some creepy images of him. So lots of surprises. That was one of the the delights of this project. Well, I'm going to be watching uh, Blue Jay games now, Daniel, because normally raccoons, they're going to hide in the shadows, right? They're not going to jump out normally into like a lighted area, right? 
Uh, probably not, um, but you never know if they get if they get spooked or if if something. I I wouldn't put anything past raccoons, frankly. <laughs> uh, they're they're not likely to go out there, but. Uh, it, it was actually a little bit funny that you mentioned the Blue Jays because there was a Toronto artist named Rob Collinette who did a version of the Blue Jays logo with a raccoon. Oh, nice. Um, and he gave me permission to put that in the book. And it's, it's, uh, it was, how, what do you call it? Toronto Trash Pandas. <laughs> um, and it's beautiful. I would so much rather have that image. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not likely to be out there. But they, I mean, again, they, they show up in the darndest places. They show up in art galleries and they show up on the subway and they show up in um tim hortons coming through the roof and uh they will be you know they're on skyscrapers and cranes they'll they'll show up pretty much anywhere so don't don't imagine that you won't see them someplace raccoons in a tim hortons it's good to know they have similarly bad taste (laughs) (laughs) as as people uh, so, Daniel, your creative work also explores, uh, as your bio states, indigenous belonging and imagination. So, how does this work, you know, with badgers and beavers? Like, how does that intersect with your work uh, as professor of critical indigenous studies? Well, I think for for me, one of the things that is really important is to remember that the person isn't limited to the human. And that's really consistent in our traditions, that we, we have long histories of relationships with our other-than-humans neighbors. You know, sometimes they're very mutually supportive, sometimes they're conflicted, uh, but we've, they've never been, you know, creatures who were beneath consideration. Um, and in Cherokee tradition, we have an old story about the coming of disease into the world, which is... It's a really significant one in thinking about my work um, because the the story is that humans were a really very weak people uh, when we first emerged into the world. And um, it was the animals who taught us how to survive. And so, you know, they gave up parts of their bodies so that we would have clothing and that we would have sinew for uh, bows and different things. And, and we were quite respectful of them early on. But as our numbers started to grow, we became more arrogant and more avaricious and and more extractive and started to really just inflict harm on them because we could. And after a particular period when the animals had experienced a lot of violence and just, you know, senseless destruction, the animal chiefs came into council uh, to figure out what to do with us. And the solution that they came up with was that they would inflict on us disease to repay us for our unkindness and our lack of gratitude, uh, but also to winnow down our numbers. Um, And so all of the diseases that we have in the world today are a result of curses that were were given by the animal chiefs, but that were in response to our cruelty. We would not exist today if not for the plant chiefs who were gathered in council around the animals and who took pity on us. The, The plants had longer memories and understood that we were a very young people. And for every disease that was given, the plants gave a cure. Um, if we came to them with respect um, and in, in the, the right way. And so for me, that's a really interesting story about animal agency and also plant agency, um, but also the ways in which, you know, in our traditions, we were, we have a tradition where we didn't behave well. And we are still paying the price for that, but we also have a redemptive 
possibility if we show more respect. And that respect isn't only for the plants, but it's also a respect that's given to the animals. Um, and we also have to understand that there is nobody to help us if we screw up with the plants. <laughs> yeah. Right? So we, we better be good. So in my work in Indigenous studies, increasingly there's a lot of consideration about how do we understand kinship in a more expansive way with our other-than-human kin in, in a time and place where it's very hard to hold on to those particular relational values. And how does our understanding of our obligations to our own nations and our own territories, how does that also include our obligations to our other-than-human relatives? I love this so much. I, my work is in this, this um, field of One Health right? This idea that our health is related to the the health of the environment, the health of people. That is that is so much what I'm hearing here. And really, Western science is only now starting to recognize mm -hmm. that, that interconnectedness and like trying to use it as this model of disease, because for so much what you're saying, I mean, we, we look at animals and we say, you have diseases, you make us sick. And it's like, well, often it's because of our actions mm -hmm. of removing habitat, of coming into close contact with them that result in those transmission events and if we changed our actions if we were kinder that we wouldn't we wouldn't have those yeah. opportunities right absolutely thank you for sharing that i i think we'll, we're going to move into the nerd herd questions here really quick but i wanted to ask you what's the next book uh you've got badger you've got raccoon i must admit i checked reaction books there's already one on rats but i think it's from 2004 maybe you could write another one <laughs> what's uh what's next so i think i'm done with the reaction animal series I've, I've done these two and i've really enjoyed it but i do have um i'm in the early stages of research for uh, the Codex Mustelidae, so the the Book of Weasels, uh, but that's all all of the weasel kin. Uh, so coming a little bit back to to badgers, but um, I'm interested in kind of a, a general cultural history of the weasel kin in North America and to engage indigenous traditions as well as um, you know broader traditions as well. So early stages, but that's my uh, that's my next animal book. Uh, I also have a peer-reviewed animal podcast that's going to be starting in, we're going to start recording it in the fall. Right now it's called Creaturely Conversations. It's going to be a while before that comes out, but uh, raccoons will get a, are, are one of the featured species in the first season. So Okay. Wow. I'm really excited. I'm so excited that even though I edit this, I wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know who else is going to be uh, writing that down, Kaylee? The nerd herd? Oh, yeah. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? It's like carbon it's based. The fastest thing on Earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right. If you want to get in on the Nerd Herd questions, we post them on our social media at Nerd Night YVR, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we have two that are we're going to combine together here for you, Daniel. Uh, so our first from Allison uh, asks, Raccoons are able to get into all kinds of clever mischief because of their nimble hands. Why do they have hands instead of paws? Are there other animals with similar hands? And then Sandra also asks, why do they rub their hands? So they are still paws. They don't have opposable thumbs, but they do have very flexible digits. So um, this is one of those big questions that people ask all the time. And actually, a lot of names for raccoons come from the way they use their paws. Um, I mean, the German is washbar for 
you know, the washing bear. They're an arboreal species. They evolved for living in trees, and arboreal species tend to have flexible digits, right? Um, you can look at squirrels, and squirrel forepaws are very dexterous as well. So that would be the first thing I'd say, is that they, they, they look like hands. They're, they're not primate hands. We could still call them hands if we want to, but they're forepaws. And the reason they're always rubbing their hands, this is a really fascinating thing for me, is they're forepaws have very, very um, sensitive skin. They're not quite as sensitive as ours, but they're connected to a part of their brain that helps them read things. Like, so when they're, when they're messing with things, their hands are taking in information that vision and smell and taste alone can't. So you typically find them like messing with things for food value to assess uh, whether or not this is something that they can eat. That mechanism still isn't really well understood, but it seems that when their forepaws are wet, it makes them even more sensitive and helps kind of pull that information into their brain. And so they can be looking out at the world and scanning for threats and get a huge amount of information just from messing with something in their paws. So they, you know, whereas we would have to look at it rather than touch it uh, for you know for those of us who have um, who are able to see raccoons don't have to so in many ways they're reading the object through the sensitive skin on their forepaws oh my god i'm just remembering this tiktok video that i watched in like this past week and it was a raccoon sort of playing with this hose of water and it had its paws sort of like in the stream of water and it would go into the stream and then out of the stream and then rub the hands and back into the stream and now i'm thinking that that must have been like a really wild sensation it was maybe even enjoying that sensation absolutely and, and you you watch them and they're it's fascinating when you kind of understand that this is connected to a different part of their brain and they're getting so much else in it, then you can you, like you can see they're they're fascinated and it it probably got to feel good. It's got to be a fascinating experience. <laughs> and also very conf- like some of the stuff that they get, you can tell that they're they're messing with it really wildly because they're trying to figure it out. But they're not looking. I'm at sure it. you've both seen this video of the raccoon who who's like washing or reading cotton candy in a Oh, it's devastating. Yeah, it's like one of the most heartbreaking things to watch. But now I'm thinking of it totally differently because at the time I just imagined or I saw the raccoon looking at it like, where did it go? But it's actually taking that information in its hands and to no longer feel it, like to just have it disappear. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So so that's the that's the neat thing about the forepaws. And, and it's still not entirely understood kind of how this works. Like they're they're quite unique in that way. Um, and that's why you see them often scratching at things, washing things. And this is also why when people do things like put mouse traps in their garden to stop raccoons from walking around. I mean, imagine if your skin is that sensitive to have a mouse trap snapping on it. The pain would be, to my, I would imagine it would be exponentially worse. And to to lose a a forepaw, either you know from accident or from uh, predation, would be beyond just making it harder for them to get around and to get food, it would actually reduce their sensory input significantly. So when we're thinking about raccoon management, we start with managing our environment and not straight to the the mouse traps. Yes. Our last question, I think I probably know uh, the answer to this, but I'd be curious to hear how you answer this question from Alyssa. Are they as scary, terrifying as they look? They can be. 
Absolutely. Um, These are predators, right? And if you look, uh, I have a really good uh, photo in the book of a raccoon that's yawning, and they have massive canines. So you take an animal, which is a predator, which is omnivorous, but, you know, is carnivorous um, significantly, that is not particularly afraid of humans, that is drawn to novelty, that can get pretty much anywhere, and is strong. You have an animal that could be quite dangerous. And this is one of the things that I find really upsetting about a lot of people's interest in raccoons is, you know, everybody wants a pet raccoon. Like so many people would love to have, they see these little kits and they're adorable. But, you know, you're, when you talked about having raccoon handling gloves, raccoon kits are lovely. When they hit sexual maturity, they are not so lovely anymore. Yeah. They are very dangerous. And there, there have been people who have been mauled terribly. You know, children who've had severe facial disfigurement from raccoon attacks. They are smart. They are independent. They have their own ways of being in the world. And that also includes that they can defend themselves quite readily. In coon hunts, um, there are lots of stories of, uh, of dogs being dragged and drowned by full-grown raccoons. Um, so I think, as with any animal, it's important to treat them with respect. Leave the kits alone. If there's an orphan kit, call a proper wildlife rehab person to come and look after them. Do not try to raise them yourself. It's not good for them. It almost always ends up in heartache. Um, and even when they are, even when they survive puberty, the their lives are quite diminished as a result of captivity. So I think they they can be quite dangerous. They can be quite delightful. They're more delightful when you just let them do their thing. Leave them alone. Let them be raccoons in wherever they are. Minimize the potential for conflict and just enjoy them in all their raccoon splendor. Raccoon splendor. I love it. It sounds uh, very, very, very poetic. <laughs> Thank you. Um, should we nerd out? I would love to nerd out. What you nerding about? What you nerding about? If you want to get in on the nerd outs, we also post them on our social media. You can share with us what you are nerding out about. Get at us at NerdNightYVR. We have one that came in from Kim. She's nerding out about jumping spiders on Vancouver Island. Have you ever seen a jumping spider, Daniel? I have not. It sounds fascinating and a slight bit horrifying. (laughs) Yes, I've never seen a jumping spider either. What? I'm sure you have. I saw one on my deck yesterday. (laughs) They're they're very cute. I encourage everyone after this to go look up peacock jumping spiders that are beautifully colored and the males do those like dances with their arms. The the, the little tiny ones. Yeah. I'm thinking jumping spider. I'm thinking like a monster one. Oh, Oh, okay. Now I have seen those. They're very cute. They they can jump and they're very fuzzy. (laughs) All right. Uh, Daniel, what are you nerding out about? Oh my gosh. Well, I, you know, with the book coming out, I've just been nerding out about raccoon stuff. Um, like that's been kind of the, the center of my life lately. So one thing that I still find really amazing with raccoons is that, you know, they're an invasive species in Japan. And as a result of the Fukushima nuclear accident, there's a whole area where there are wild raccoons and wild boars who have, their populations have gone wild, but they can't be hunted because of the the radiation poisoning. So there are atomic raccoons oh, no. <laughs> probably riding atomic 
bores oh in the Fukushima exclusion zone, um, and they they will be part of the the raccoon rebellion. Uh, this is a comic book waiting to happen. <laughs> Daniel, I think this is calling you to write this comic book. Next book, we found it. Awesome. What about you, Michael? Do you have uh, any radioactive nerd outs? Well, I I very well might. Uh, I thought that I would just share with the listeners and with both of you kind of like how my brain works when I kind of get, you know, onto something. So... I was having these meandering thoughts and I landed on a sensual question that kind of took me in a bunch of different directions. So it started with watching the animated Netflix series, The Midnight Gospel, really cool animated show. Oh man. There's a scene in the very first episode where some characters are being chased by zombies, they get bitten by the zombies, and then all of a sudden the zombies, you know, turn nice and they're singing and it's very pleasant. And I got to sort of like thinking like, oh, wouldn't that be interesting if like there was a parasite that sort of did that in, in a lot of ways, that's kind of what parasites do, right? Like they change your world and you're no longer scared of that, of that thing that actually, you know, wants to eat you. Now, simultaneously, I had been joking with a friend on the, the side tangent that wouldn't be funny as like a sketch or a sci-fi story if you could just catch getting pregnant like a virus, like if it was just like floating around airborne like a virus. Ugh. And that's... <laughs> and that's, you know, how a kin were made in this world, in this sci-fi world. And that was just like a, a weird thought. And then I thought, well, that's also kind of like a parasite. And there have been sci-fi stories that sort of get into that. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, probably the most uh, common one. Also, Day of the Triffids, you know, getting into the plant world. You know, that's kind of like how, you know, things are, are spread. And then the central question, you know, came to me, which I don't have an answer to, maybe both of you could help me out here. Is there an ecosystem where a, the parasite is the dominant species? And would that even be possible? So I pumped this into Google and uh, up came that this paper written in 2010 called The Ecological Consequences of Parasitism by Daniel Preston, Peter Johnson from University of Colorado. And sure enough, parasites are important to the health of biodiversity in an ecosystem, everything from a symbiotic relationship to even possibly curing autoimmune diseases or allergies. Um, but it didn't really answer the question of if it would be possible if a parasite could be a dominant species. I guess that's getting into the Day of the Triffids. If anyone has read that, you know, they'll kind of know what I'm talking about. But I'd be very curious to sort of find out more about parasites and if they could, if there would just be a planet of just parasites. <laughs> Welcome to my brain, everyone. <laughs> it's an interesting question because I think we, then we have to kind of define what we mean by parasite, right? Like that, that starts to question taxonomies completely. Right. Yeah. So I guess like in the case of the Day of the Triffids, you know, they came from another world. They came here became the parasite, taking over from humans who were the dominant species on this planet. But then if at some point, if if the plants won, it, the story ends before they kind of gets to like what happens at the end. But what would happen to the plants? Would they no longer be a parasite? They would just be the dominant species here. But then I guess what would their main food source be? And why are they thriving here? I have a lot of questions about that too. <laughs> I'll, I'll be continuing to ponder this, uh, uh, keeping me up at night uh, with these hot, uh, these hot nights. This is what my this is how my <laughs> brain works. Pleasant dreams. Uh, what about you, Kaylee? What's uh, what's uh, keeping you up at night these days? Well, <laughs> something a little bit different. I am officially 
almost like actually just officially one year post PhD. And I finally enjoy reading again. Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. So I, I wanted to nerd out about a book that I just finished reading. And I actually heard about this book uh, through social media, um, through uh, feed, through Raven Reads, which is an Indigenous-owned subscription box program, including books and giftware created by Indigenous authors and artists. So definitely worth a follow on social media for new book recommendations. And the book I wanted gush about is um, The Barren Grounds by David Robertson. Have you read it? I have. Isn't it fantastic? (laughs) Well, he's such a great writer and such a committed community member too. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Uh, Yeah, I I loved it um, so much. Uh, For those who haven't read it, it's a story of two Indigenous children and they find a portal to a new reality and embark on this journey of realizing their identity and deals with connection and engaging with community. And it's Everything that I love in a story, the character is incredibly engaging, both human and non-human for those uh, other than human kinships <laughs> and uh, lots of character growth, really beautifully written story. And um, there's a second book in the Misawa saga coming out in the fall that I'm also really excited about. But you were just talking about David Robertson and his writing. And I, I just watched uh, an interview with him the other day because I love this book. I wanted to understand a little bit more about that writing. And he said a couple things in this interview that really struck me. And the first that I think as writers and Michael as a science communicator, I think would sort of resonate with all of us is that stories come to us in many different ways. And I truly believe that that's true, right? You could, you don't know that you're at the start of a story or in your, you're in the middle of it. To me, it sort of speaks to the importance of being open to experience and reflecting on experience. And the second was that he said that people often think you should write about what you know, which is a mentality that I've definitely gotten into in science, but one that I push back on heavily um, because I think it's very exclusionary, but that he believes that writing can be a way to explore the world in which we live. And I love that because it's so much more inclusive and it's a view of how our written works come into the world and how our ideas change as we learn. So um, I wanted to share that, especially because we were talking about writing today. So all in all, 11 out of 10, highly recommend. If you're into audiobooks, the narration of this book is spectacular. It's done by um, Brethany Caribou. So give it a read or a listen. That's my nerd out. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So everyone go and find that David uh, Robertson book and everyone go and find uh, Daniel Juss's book, Raccoon. <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on Nerd About today. Uh, of course, where can people go read Raccoon and where can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, well, you can find Raccoon at your local independent bookstore. I highly, If they don't have it, they can order it in. And I'm quite actively on Twitter, probably too actively on Twitter, at JusticeDanielH. And I have a website, uh, DanielHeathJustice.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I learned a lot and I had a lot of fun. I'm sure it's the same for Michael. Uh, Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This episode was hosted and produced by us, edited by me, and edited and audio engineered by Elise Lane. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again... Be like a raccoon and check out something new.